Welcome to What the Risk, Exposing Business Blind Spots, an interview-based podcast series that discusses risk management topics. Have you ever been blindsided in a business situation? Think about your entire computer system going down, a supplier that cannot deliver, or your biggest customer declaring bankruptcy, or your new marketing strategy completely missing the mark. These are visceral what-the-risk moments. Your exact words may be different, but the feeling is the same. When everyone's eyes are focused on the next sale, high-impact, low-visibility risks often get overlooked. We call these blind spots, and these blind spots cause what-the-risk moments. I am your host, Larry Gordon of Gordon Risk Solutions. Join us on this journey as we learn to ask the right questions, expose potential pitfalls, and empower you to turn the what-the-risk moments into I've Got This victories. Welcome to episode 103, first season, third episode. We've seen rising interest rates this year and its impact on the cost of credit throughout the economy. And in the financial sector, we've seen direct effects of these rising interest rates. Some banks did not have the adequate risk management programs in place to address portfolio imbalances between their assets and liabilities. These were the first banks to fail. During this episode, we'll discuss the current banking environment and the differences or similarities to the banking crisis of the 1980s and the Great Recession from our guest, Bill Isaac. He is uniquely qualified to help us unpack the issues associated with the banking environment based on his unparalleled career in the financial services industry, as well as in public service, spanning over 50 years. He was chairman of the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, from 1978 through 1985, when over 3,000 banks and thrifts failed. And he was chairman of Fifth Third Bank Corp from 2009 to 2014, during the back half of the Great Recession. I expect this to be an in-depth conversation. Bill, welcome to the What the Risk podcast. We're glad you're here. Good to be here with you, Larry. So we have a number of interesting topics to get through today. So let me just start by asking you to tell us a little bit about when you got to the FDIC, what you found, and a little bit about what you had to address. The first thing I'd tell you is I was the youngest FDIC chairman ever, even to this day. I was uh, 34 when I joined the FDIC board. Uh, and uh, uh, in my first day in office, the I was actually in Louisville, Kentucky, where I had been with First Kentucky National Corporation. And uh, the, the executive secretary came flew to Louisville and met me at a hotel swore me in in the in the lobby of the hotel and we got in a cab and went to the airport and flew flew to puerto rico that was my uh, where we handled the failure of the second largest bank in puerto rico that was my first day in office uh so <laughs> that was a great day to start the job yeah well it was a precursor of what was to come because that's what the next eight years were like uh it was just one failure after another it was very very hectic um uh, and we always handled bank failures almost always on, on a weekend. And so I, I rarely, during the next eight and a half years, uh, had a weekend off. Uh, I mean, I was always on the phone uh, or in the office working on uh, on failures and authorizing things and, and the like. So it was a, a very hectic period. Uh, the uh, FDIC handled some 3,000 bank failures during the 1980s, bank and thrift failures. Uh, and so it was it was a busy time. My first day in the office was Puerto Rico and to handle that failure. And and I didn't have any other. There were three directors on the FDIC board and I was one of the three and they weren't there. So I was all alone. I can imagine how I felt at that moment, uh, at that age, uh, being there for this that uh, a failure of that size. But anyway, uh, I dug in and uh, and looked at the all the problems we were facing and uh, and uh, decided what we needed to do to get ready for it. And I, I would tell you that the FDIC was not ready for it at that time. It couldn't be because it had not, it had, was formed back in the 1930s and it did handle a number of failures back then. But then we had some, I don't know, uh, I guess the better part of 50 years since then. And, the, and we handled almost no failures, you know, maybe five, 10 a year. Uh, and they weren't very big ones at, at that for the most part. So we really were not ready to handle a lot of failures and not at all ready to handle a lot of big failures. 
and we had 3,000 employees, and that was not nearly enough to handle what we were facing. We really did expect to have a lot of failures. I mean, I didn't probably didn't expect to have as many as we had uh, during the during the 80s, but and I didn't expect as many big ones as we had. But we knew we were in a, we were facing uh, a lot of problems, and and we had to bulk up. So one of the first things I did is start hiring, and we we increased from 3,000 employees to about 12,000 during my tenure there. And then we kept on increasing uh, from 12,000 to about 20,000 before it ended in the 90s. Uh, and then we were able to, to not continue to add staff and start to de decrease the staff. So the first thing we did is bulk up the staff a lot. Another thing we had to do, if you're, if you're going from 3,000 people to 20,000 people, you've got a lot of people you have to train and and uh, in, in all manner of things, how to examine banks and how to handle bank failures and the like. And so we had training facilities in, uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., and I think it was uh, uh, Arlington or Alexandria. I don't remember exactly what, where it was, but we had a, a small training center that was in rental property. And so uh, one of the next things I did was, was to authorize the building of a new training center, and we bought land uh, near... George Mason University, and uh, and we built a training center, a state-of-the-art training center, uh, and where we trained not only people from the FDIC, but a lot of state agencies sent people there, state banking agencies, as well as the Federal Reserve and the Controller of the Currency sent people there to be trained. So that was that was another major undertaking we did. We had to change all of them. We changed a lot of the compensation and, and employment programs. Uh, that people were having to travel all the time. Uh, and so we had to take that into account when we paid them. Uh, and people were going to all different parts of the country with different pay scales in different places. And so we had to, to uh, accommodate that. So there were a lot of things we had to do to get the FDIC ready to face what it was facing. Uh, it all went it all went amazingly smoothly uh, for, for what we were doing. And I was very pleased with it. And I think the staff responded great. I mean, they really were terrific. And they put up with a lot of nonsense <laughs> or what they might have thought was nonsense, but we knew had to be done. Uh, and uh, we couldn't afford scandals. So we had to make sure we were paying people properly for their expenses and all this stuff. We really did a lot of things to uh, bring the, the agency up to speed. And uh, that's probably one of the proudest things I am about my time at the FDIC is how we took it from an agency that really wasn't ready uh, for what it was facing. And we got it ready and it performed really well. I'm very happy with the FDIC and the quality of the things they did. In fact, the Congress sort of adopted what the FDIC did and because and, uh, we were we were not subject to the uh, to, uh, federal pay scales and all that sort of thing. And, and the other agencies were. And so Congress gave to the controller of the currency and the Fed uh, a lot of the FDIC's programs uh, and made them lawful for, for, for those agencies as well. Uh, so we brought, the I think, all the agencies up to speed in a, in a meaningful way. Going from 3,000 people to 20,000 people, the, the infrastructure that you talked about is important. How did you build the culture where people were really focused on the right risks and actively engaged in kind of managing those risks? Well, that was a process, and, and that's what the training center was for. Um, and I mean, one, one thing that I, I, I tell you that I was very sensitive about, we were handling billions and billions of dollars in these failed banks. Because that's, I mean, they were, they were many, many billions of dollars of assets that were being turned over to the FDIC to manage. And one of the things that I addressed early on was, um, We've got to have the right controls in place because you can't turn over billions and billions of dollars to people and say handle these and not have them handled right because that, that's that's the potential for enormous scandal uh, if you don't handle them right and that's that's one of the things that I emphasize very strongly every, practically every day <laughs> we will not have scandals do everything precisely right uh, have the right controls in place the right approval process and so forth. And, and use the right experts uh, for the you know opinions of value and all that sort of thing. That was one of the things that scared me the most because you have an agency that hadn't done a lot for the last 50 years in terms of managing assets. And now it had to manage tens of billions of assets 
Uh, and it was, uh, you know, I, I'm proud of the fact that to this day, I don't think the FDIC has had a scandal about asset values and what it did, uh, which is which is really wonderful to be able to go. I say I've been out of office about 40 years, so uh, I think I think those controls have stood the test of time. And you know, we had lots of audit procedures and things we put into place, and and yet we we didn't want to handicap the, the people who were doing the work. They they we couldn't put. Uh, enormous burdens in their way so they couldn't act efficiently. So it was a really challenging situation to say, do the right things, but don't take too much time doing them. <laughs> yeah, I think that you bring up a great point for a lot of growth companies in whatever industry, is if you're going to grow and you're going to grow fast, you need to have all the right policies, the procedures, the controls, and the audit functions to ensure that you're not going to have the blind spots of the variance of people doing things differently and creating the scandals that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And and when you when you go from three thousand people, most of whom weren't handling troubled assets, they were just doing bank examinations. So you go from twenty uh, uh, three thousand people to twenty thousand people. A bunch of them you, you don't know. I mean, you, you just hired them. And you, you're training them to do the right things. Uh, that's 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 really scary. It, I mean, it, it is. It makes it makes you really nervous as a as a CEO of a place. How do I get this growth and not have it and not have it be out of control? Not to have people that we don't know. We haven't maybe trained them properly and so forth. So that that was a real challenge, and it's a challenge that every bank faces. Um, it's not you know. We, the FDIC was becoming a very big bank yes, uh, in, a, in a very big hurry. And, and most of the, most of the assets were very troubled. And so imagine, imagine if you're running a bank, what's that, what that's like. And so um, that's, that's what, that's the face. Uh, that's the challenge that a lot of banks face day in and day out. Hopefully not to that extreme going from 3000 people to 20,000 people in a matter of, of a couple of years. Uh, so hopefully not that fast a growth and hopefully not all troubled assets. But uh, and that, that's sort of a, 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 a wild and crazy version of, of what banks go through. And, and But banks do go through those problems and that's where they get in trouble frequently. And that's what I was very sensitive to because I, I'd been in the banking business and I saw troubled banks back in the 1972 to 74 period. I was I was with one of the largest banks and it was the largest bank in Wisconsin. And they got into that REIT crisis that we had back in that period. So I saw what went on when you had rapid growth and and troubled assets and how hard it was to deal with it. And so that was a lesson that I had coming into the FDIC. And, you know, the, the bank that I was with in Kentucky was not as big and as troubled as, as others, it, it was relatively healthy, but it had its problems. And I was general counsel, so I had to deal with a lot of those problems. And so uh, that that was really good training for what I was about to embark on at the FDIC, because I got what I what I inherited was a great big bank that went from three thousand people to twenty thousand people, and all of the all of the loans were troubled, almost all were troubled. And so how do you deal with that and, and not and not have a crisis on your hands in terms of failure to do the things that need to be done to control losses and fraud and all that sort of stuff? And that, but that's that's sort of a big problem that you're faced with. But it's, it's the same problem that most banks are faced with, maybe smaller scale uh, for most for most banks. There are some banks that are much bigger than that and and they have they have much bigger problems they have to deal with. So that's a, that's a real uh, that was a real lesson I had that was was helpful. So then, after the FDIC, you went through a period where you were practicing law and you were doing some consulting. And so, how did you end up at Fifth Third Bank? Well, I, I left the FDIC and I decided it was funny. I was trying to decide what do I want to do, and I thought, well, the logical thing since I just ran this FDIC through a crisis would be to join a big bank, and. Uh, and then I thought about it and I thought, I don't think there's any bank that's going to satisfy me after what I've been through. What I just described to you, right? thousands of bank failures, no weekends off and everything. I think I'd be, I just don't think I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go 
be as calm <laughs> and peaceful as it would be to go to a, a normal bank after this. And so I decided that what I really would be good at was helping banks get through troubles and to try to help them learn how to handle assets properly and make loans properly and, and all the things that it takes. Because the period that I was at, at the FDIC, it was transformational, big time transformational, because during the 1930s, Congress decided that banks should not um, be taking a lot of risks. We didn't want to go through another depression. So what we wanted was a financial system that was absolutely safe and and foolproof. And so that's what they gave us. And and they, they were successful at it. Banks had all sorts of controls on them, where they could branch, whether they could branch, uh, whether where they could operate their banks, uh, what they could pay for deposits, what they could, what they could charge for loans, uh, what kinds of loans they could make, what kinds of non-bank activities, financial activities could they engage in. And so banks and thrifts all had their little sandbox and they had their rules. And, and the rules were designed so that they didn't create huge problems uh, for themselves. They, they wanted the banks and the thrifts to be safe. And then non-banks were still were told to stay out of the banking arena. You don't belong there because this is what this is our safe place. Mm-hmm. And and so if you're an investment bank where you're going to take all these wild risks, that's okay, but do it in your own sandbox. And banks, you can't go over into that sandbox. So that those were the rules we had, and they worked uh, from 1934 when the FDIC was up and running to 19 let's say 1980. We had very few bank failures. We started to get some in the late 70s. Uh, but, but prior to that, we had we had almost no bank failures. And the reason we didn't was because we had all these controls on what banks could do and what they couldn't do and who could be in banking and who couldn't be. But all of that fell apart because Congress lost control of fiscal policy. And um, Jimmy Carter, to his great credit, uh, he, uh, uh, Jimmy Carter appointed me to the FDIC board, uh, and I, as, as a Republican to the FDIC board, and he appointed Paul Booker to the Fed. And we, I, I went on the FDIC board in '78, and Booker went on the Fed board in '79. And his, his instructions were: kill inflation, get it, get it over, get it under control, get rid of it. And so that's what we did. And, and Booker took the interest rates up a lot. Uh, and uh, uh, he took the prime rate ultimately went to, to 21.5%. Imagine that. You're running a small business. You're used to 7 or 8% interest rates. And, and, or you have a home. You took a mortgage out. Uh, or you wanted to take a mortgage out. And you're, and you're used to low rates. And all of a sudden, you're paying 21.5%, the prime rate. Um, and, and money's hard to come by in addition to that. Uh, in addition to being expensive, it's hard to find. So it created massive economic problems. But what it really did to the banks and thrifts was it changed their whole business model. You can't have interest rate controls on what you pay depositors and what you charge lenders, uh, you know, borrowers. You can't have those kinds of interest rate controls in place when the market rates are up at 21.5%. So that meant that all those controls we put in place in the 1930s had to be taken off quickly because if banks were not allowed to pay up for their, their deposits, they're not going to have any deposits. And that's not something we want the banking system to have is zero deposits. Sure. And they would, that's exactly what would have happened had we not liberalized and said, okay, here's we're taking off the interest rate controls on what you can charge for loans and what you can pay for deposits. And we're taking off as many of the other controls as we can. We can't have you all tied up. So you, let's take Illinois. Illinois had no branch banking whatsoever around, around the state and no interstate banking. And we had continental Illinois sitting there about to fail. It was the seventh largest bank in the country. And who was going to buy it if we had to if we had to handle the failure? Nobody, because nobody could branch anywhere right. in the country, much less in Illinois. And so there was a lot of structure in place 
from the 30s, which I appreciated, I liked, because it made our job a lot easier. But it wouldn't work in this new in this new era. And so we had to get rid of all that structure that went in the 30s and put in a new structure, fewer rules, and more hands-on enforcement. We didn't have rules telling you you couldn't do dumb things. <laughs> so we had to go in and make with people and make sure you weren't doing dumb things. So we inspected quality into the process. Yeah. And so and, and so we really had to re- restructure the whole system. And we had to do it quickly on the run while we were handling failures. And that's what that's what it was like. And it that's why you never had any free moments at all. You never had any time to breathe and think even. You just had to keep on going and, and do stuff. And that's that's what the 80s were like, far different than what came after. Uh, because you're, re, you're restructuring a banking system while you're handling 3,000 players. And and uh, so, so there's, there's never been a period quite that hectic since, despite what people say. Uh, that was a really tough period. So after the FDIC, you had to take a breath. And, and you had to find a hobby. So talk, talk, talk us through your post-FDIC time. Well, obviously I needed a breather, um, and, and, but I didn't take one. I actually didn't have a day between the FDIC and my next job. Uh, I, I moved immediately uh, from the FDIC to my next job, which was I joined a, a major law firm. Uh, and I established a consulting firm for banks and thrifts and other financial institutions to um, that was a part of the law firm. Uh, the law firm owned part of it. I owned the rest and then I brought people in and they owned some of it. Uh, but I created that on the run without without a, any vacation at all because I, I felt it was important to keep on going. Uh, and I was I was a young man, so I could I could do that. Um, and uh, what I decided was that rather than go to a bank, because I thought it would probably be pretty boring after that experience at the FDIC. And so I set up a firm called the Secura Group. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and the purpose of it was to help banks figure out how to run in, in themselves in a deregulated environment where they had to decide what to pay for deposits and what to charge for loans and how to how to manage risk and how to deal with the new regulatory regime and, and so forth um, and how to how to branch all over the country uh, without getting in trouble and, and so forth so that's that's what I decided to do and it was it was very successful and very satisfying I hired a bunch of people from the regulatory agencies high level people and and some senior people from banks uh, and put together this firm and and it also it also had a a talent part of the firm, uh, uh, executive search, because banks clearly going to have to hire a lot of new people that knew different things sure. than they used to know. And so that's what we did, and it was very successful. Um, and then uh, I, a lot of, not a lot, but some, as you can imagine, uh, competitors came up because they figure they saw what we were doing. They decided that was a good way to make a living too. So we had competitors come up, and for for, for the first ten years or so, it was we had basically a monopoly uh, because nobody else had what we had. And and then others started to add firms, uh, people to their firms like like ours, and uh, and so it became less interesting um, in terms of uh, there was there were a lot of a, a lot of a number of other people doing what we were doing, and it was it was not as fun uh, as it used to be and not as necessary as it used to be. Around that time, we were working on two large regional banks. Uh, one of them was Fifth Third, I won't name the other one, uh, but it was another bank of that size. Uh, and we were trying to help them because we were in the 2008 and nine period where the system all, all broke, broke apart again. Uh, I, thought we, I thought we had finished all these bad times with what Boker and I did in the 80s, but apparently we didn't learn all the lessons so adequately. And so we had a, a breakdown in the system around 2008, 2009. It was primarily a real estate problem uh, and it, it was widespread, uh, but it became far worse. I thought it was terribly mishandled. And that's why I wrote, I wrote a book in that period called Senseless Panic, 
how Washington failed America. And that was my response to the TARP program and how they mishandled the situation. Um, but during that period, a lot of banks that otherwise, I mean, Fifth Third had been extremely profitable forever. Uh, um, I think they had, I don't know, it must have been at least 30 years of record earnings. And, 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 uh, but they got in trouble during that period of 2008, 2009, as a lot of people did. And uh, I was, we were, our firm was consulting with them, trying to help them with their problems. And uh, one of their, their lead director came to me and said, uh, how would you like to leave what you're doing and become chairman of the board of Fifth Third? Uh, and I thought about it and I thought, sure, why not? Uh, I've, I'm, what I'm doing is not as unique anymore and I'm, I'm ready to do something else. And so I agreed to do it. And I had, um, I had five years until I had met, I would meet their mandatory retirement agency. So I agreed to be the lead director for five years. And I was, and, and I enjoyed it immensely. I think we made a lot of improvements at Fifth Third. And uh, what they did is they separated the chairmanship from the CEO's role uh, because they felt that they needed an independent chairman, which a lot of banks did during that period. And so Fifth Third named me as the independent chairman. And I, I, I found it very satisfying to take all those things that I had learned and put them to use back then. And Fifth Third came out of it very nicely. Um, and they're, 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 they were a great bank before then. They got in some trouble, they needed some help. And they came, they, and they became a great bank again. So I was very pleased with that. And then I joined another consulting firm for a while, and I didn't like working for a consulting firm that wasn't mine. So when you were at Fifth Third, and this is more than ten years ago, and a lot of banks were focused on a lot of different kinds of risk coming out of the Great Recession. What was Fifth Third's biggest risk that had to be managed through at that point? loan quality and that was unique uh, they hadn't had loan problems previously uh, and uh, but they uh, they were growing more rapidly and they were growing more rapidly over a broader geographic area uh, they 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 were in cincinnati and other parts of ohio they went into other states um, including much of the south and indiana uh, West Virginia, they, 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 Michigan, another one, uh, Florida. And uh, so they were growing and uh, growing more rapidly than they would otherwise have grown with their, because they were over a, a, a smaller geographic area earlier. And uh, they didn't have probably the right controls and people in place to do that, all, all that that fast. And that's how people generally get in trouble as they, they're taking on more than they can chew. So at the same time, coming out of the Great Recession, the CFPB was created. And so from a board perspective, in your role as the independent executive chairman, kind of what was the view of the CFPB controls from a culture perspective, from an infrastructure, the investment perspective, uh, as it was being built out and the compliance part of it was being built out at Fifth Third? I didn't fight the CFPB coming into existence. I thought it was a bad idea, but I thought, how bad can it be? I mean, we're already doing compliance in all the banking agencies, and how how, how can the CFPB be a lot worse uh, for banks to deal with? And so I, I, did, I stayed quiet. I didn't object to it. I'm not sure I could have done anything to change it if I had hollered, but in any event, I didn't. I just thought, well, this is a bad idea, but it can't be that bad. And and so I, I kept quiet. Turns out that it's been horrible. And the reason it's been horrible is because they didn't create a CFPB properly. Uh, it should have a board of directors, a bipartisan board of directors. Uh, and it doesn't. It has a single agency head who has almost no rules. And the agency itself has almost the, the charter for it is uh, is also ill-described if, if described at all. So they sort of make up their rules as they go along. And, and when I say they, it's really a single 
agency head who makes up whatever rules are deemed appropriate. And I don't think that ever works. I mean, what they do is they start taking on more and more and more uh, responsibilities. They have, they have, they like to change the world. And so they, they do whatever needs to be, they needs to be done in their minds to change the world and make it perfect. Um, and so I don't think it has worked and I don't think it ever will work unless Congress comes in and treats it like most every other federal agency. Uh, and that is gives it a structure and, and a governance structure and a leadership structure that to make it do the right things in the right way, uh, to make it accountable to somebody. If I were the Congress, I would, I would give them federal funding. They have to go to the Congress and ask for money. I would give them a board of directors, an independent board of directors, uh, appointed by the president, bipartisan, and, and uh, probably three members and fixed terms, say six years or whatever. And, and I'd give them some, uh, some, uh, uh, some guidance. Uh, I'd give them some rules about what, what it is they're doing. What's their enforcement power? What are they trying to do? What rules do they have to follow? None of that has happened. And so to me, the CFPB is a mess and it does, and it shouldn't be. We should have proper rules and consumer compliance. I think we did have the proper rules. I know the FDIC devoted a lot of money and people to enforcing consumer compliance. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was an important part of the FDIC's job. I know the Fed had had that as part of its job. The, the OCC had that as part of its job. The state banking agencies have that as part of their job. We didn't need a separate CFPB. But if you're going to have it, then set it up right and give it some rules and and, and some guidance and 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 make it make it spend money that it collects either from Congress or or imposes on banks, whatever whatever it's going to do. Based on that. You know, what we saw during the Great Recession, what we what you saw during the 80s. Let's pivot to kind of the bank failures that we're seeing over the past six months. What's different and do we need, what, what are we thinking about in terms of managing the current situation? We haven't managed the last six months very well. Uh, that's roughly the time period we're talking about. Um, and and it, to me, it's, 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 uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm sort of depressed about it because it's it's deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would say. Uh, everything that was happening back in that last six months was was a relic of years gone by when I was chairman of the FDIC. We saw all those problems back then, and we took care of them, and and we hoped that that the lessons would be learned forever, that people wouldn't repeat those problems because. They learned something from from the period of the 80s. But let's take Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank had a problem with an interest rate mismatch. They they bought a bunch of fixed rate government bonds, as I understand it. And at a time when rates really couldn't do much but go up because the Fed had rates down at an incredibly low. I mean, the Fed policy was terrible. They had, they had rates down to somewhere close to zero, uh, 1, 2%, 2%, 2%, whatever. And, and that monetary policy was very bad. And fiscal policy was also very bad. And so we had a rising rate environment for sure. And why would you go out and buy a bunch of fixed rate government bonds and load up? And they, they tripled in size over a three-year period. They didn't follow your FDIC playbook, did they? No. I mean, <laughs> first Pennsylvania did that in 1979. That's, that's a failure I handed, handled in 1979 with Paul Booker. First Pennsylvania, I guess, missed the message that Booker was being appointed Fed chairman to raise rates. They, they didn't read their paper that day, I guess. And they, they, they went out and loaded up on fixed-rate government bonds. First Pennsylvania was the oldest national bank in the country. Number one charter, because uh, it was started back in the Civil War. 
Uh, I mean, they, they became a national bank in the Civil War. So they were the first charter when the national charters were allowed. And they've been around all that time. And they didn't think that loading up, expanding their balance sheet and loading up with a bunch of fixed rate government bonds could be a bad idea when you have rampant inflation and, the, and a new Fed chairman directed to raise rates. So then we flash forward to SVB, who did the same thing. They did the same thing. They did the same thing. And, and, and so you have to wonder, what were these people thinking about? Were they thinking? And, and I, I mean, I, that's the 1980s all over again. But you already saw it once. Why do you need to go watch the movie again? Do we think that uh, uh, enough other banks either have or are currently working through the same examples that SVB gave us as to how to not risk manage? I believe that there are other banks that that have a lot of fixed rate long-term loans or bonds or whatever it is they have. Um, that's not a, that that was not unique to Silicon Valley Bank. It was the worst. Just just as I don't think what First Pennsylvania went through was unique, but it was the first and the worst. Um, and then others will follow on behind. Uh, how many failures are going to occur? I I don't know. I said that at the time. Everybody said it's just does First Pennsylvania does a. Silicon Valley Bank, does that mean we're going to have massive bank failures? I don't think so. For one thing, we don't have massive banks anymore. I mean, back then, in the in the first Pennsylvania days, we had 13,000 banks and 5,000 or 6,000 thrifts. So we had a lot of but a lot of banks and thrifts with with fixed rate loan problems. Uh, but so we don't have, we don't have that problem in, in that kind of scale today. But there, but it's not the only bank that I'm you know that has misrate mismatch on their on their rates and so i think that others are are going to suffer from it will they fail i don't know some some might some might just have some lousy earnings for a while until they get out of the mess and and uh, if the rates won't be up forever they're going to come down at some point uh and 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 if the banks aren't too bad off they'll make it no they'll, they'll, they'll get through it um and i don't i don't see anything nearly as bad as silicon valley bank out there with the possible exception of first republic uh, which came down as well for much the same reason. Sure. Uh, both of them, and both of those banks added tons of growth in the, in the, in the last two or three years of their lives, um, which was just uncalled for. It was a, I don't, I don't know what they were thinking. So what are you seeing as the trends uh, from a risk management perspective and trends from a weaknesses that people should be focused on from regulatory or risk pillars within the banking organizations. What are you seeing besides the risk mismanagement on the asset and liabilities? Well, that's that's a big one, uh, very big. Uh, and when you have asset, and and when you have mismatches like that, you're likely going to have asset quality problems. Period. You might have you know loan quality problems and things because the borrowers may not be ready for what's happening in terms of increasing their rates. And so that, that could lead to credit problems. In the case, in the case of uh, Silicon Valley Bank, that was just a, a mismatch on, on their bonds. But, but that also could have led to asset quality problems. They're loaning money to borrowers that can't handle the increase in rates. And so it leads to credit problems. And then if you're being sloppy in those areas or careless or whatever you want to call it, you probably are taking more risks in other areas that, that you know, you're, you're growing too fast uh, in other areas or, or whatever it is you're doing. You're expanding too fast. Um, so you, it, it, there's never when, when let's take Continental Illinois. When Continental, Continental Illinois got into trouble, it was a the seventh largest bank in the country. So it's pretty good size and had some diversity. But you saw them get into trouble earlier. I mean, we saw it when they started making bad loans. When Penn Square failed in Oklahoma in 1982, who was one of the biggest lenders to Penn Square? Continental Illinois. And I said in 1982, 
we'd better keep an eye on continental Illinois because they had way too much money in Penn Square. And therefore, they probably have way too much money elsewhere. And sure enough, um, that was a that was a telltale sign that came true. So they had concentration risks. So if we think about that in the things we've been talking about so far, what do you think the regulators are going to be looking at from a vulnerabilities perspective during their exams over the next 18 months? Well, I'll, I'll, always they should be looking at concentrations. Uh, if, if you're not properly diversified, then um, you're not properly protected against losses, significant losses. So diversification is really important. I mean, it's diverse, diversification everywhere. Uh, you can't you can't have too much of anything and get away with it forever. And I mean, you know, I was with First Kentucky before I went to the FDIC, and First Kentucky was a, a regional bank, the largest in Kentucky, and relatively small bank in today's world. But that that was a different time. Uh, everybody was smaller then, and but anyway, I uh, the, the the CEO of the bank. Or the, the chairman of the bank, he wasn't the CEO, he'd been the CEO before. He was very proud of the bank's record. And he said, he used to brag all the time about, our bank has always been successful. We have not had a down year, a down year in earnings. This was in, see, I went, I went to First Kentucky in 1975. Okay. Mm-hmm. He said, we haven't had a down year since 1930-something, 40, 40 years, they hadn't had a single down year in earnings. And he said, the reason why we haven't had a single down year since 1940 or 30s is because not because we're smarter than anybody else, because we're not. It's not because we're luckier than anyone else, because we're not. He said, it's because we diversify. We don't do, we do dumb things. Don't get me wrong. We do dumb things. We've made every mistake every other bank has ever made, whether it was LDC loans or whether it was, uh, you know, uh, housing loans or whatever. We've made every mistake that every other bank has made, but we've never overdone it. We've always had a diversified balanced portfolio. And that's why we've had record earnings for 40 years. And, and that's, that's, that's the, the primary lesson I would tell any banker or any bank regulator. That's the key to success. Don't overdo it. Don't think you're smarter than everybody else because you're not. You're, you're smart. You're good. And if you really are smart and you're really good, you'll diversify your risk all, of, all across the board. Don't do anything in excess. So as a board member of a bank and being involved in so many banks, what would your kind of executive board member advice be to the chief credit officer, to lending officers about their portfolios currently and as they make new, new loans? Don't, don't be afraid to make a mistake because then it paralyzes you. You have to take risks. You're in a risk business. I mean, what good would a bank be if it didn't take any risk? And and so take risks, but don't overdo it. Put a cap on it in every in every way, mm-hmm. whether it's interest rates, whether it's credit quality, uh, whether it's geography. Don't don't put all of your loans in the same geography. Uh, and, and that's and that's why, you know, the FDIC was created in the 30s. And we before that we had every every practically every state in the union had had an FDIC type insurance company, okay, and they all failed. Every one of them, every one of the state chartered insurance companies failed multiple times because whenever they had a recession or depression, they had all their risk concentrated in that state, and they wound up failing. And so Congress said, we we can't do this again. Let's let's create a federal deposit insurance corporation that spreads its risk all over the country. And 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 that's and that's the, the whole basis for the FDIC is not to have 
excessive concentration ge- ge- geographically mm-hmm. or by industry or whatever. And and so that that's why the FDIC, when they come to your bank, if they're doing their job right, they should be looking at your concentrations, geographic concentrations. And so let's say let's say you're a bank that's in one state or one part of a state. That makes you more dangerous than a bank that has a lot more diversification. Sure. You know, I mean, not, not, not necessarily, but if you if you don't protect against that concentration, you're you're going to you're going to be in trouble. And so the FGIC, when they come to examine, they ought to be looking at where are they banking? What are the businesses in the areas where they're banking? What are the vulnerabilities of the bank of the businesses in those areas? Do they have too much of it in this bank? I mean, let's say you're a farm bank. If all if, if almost all of your credits are in the local farming area, well, you know that's higher risk than if you were spread over uh, a broader area and you didn't have your primary risk being agriculture because that's a unique risk that get they and they get in trouble pretty much all at one time. And so if, if, if you're structured like that, you've got to say, well, I'm going to have to be more careful with my loans. I'm going to have to have a higher uh, loan to, uh, I mean, lower loan to, to value uh, ratios. Sure. I, need, I, need, need, I need to make sure I've got perhaps some, some extra credit you know, some kind of guarantees or something if I'm going to take a lot of risk. So that's that's what I'm saying is no bank is like any other bank. They are all they're all different and they all have to evaluate evaluate their risk and and diversify those risks. And some banks don't have to worry about it so much because they, they are so broadly diversified. There are other banks, they have to worry about it a lot. If I owned a an agricultural bank, I would be in a and if 60 or 70 or 80 percent of my loans were to agricultural you know to farms i would be careful very careful about how i lent and and, and you're doing that for the sake of the, the community what, what, what good are you to your community if you fail you know you, you owe it to your community to be diversified what, what good do you do a borrower to give them too much money and, and fail exactly it, is, it seems like when you were talking about credit, the FDIC currently uh, is looking forward and seeing a a bit of a credit crisis coming or uh, credit weakness, I should better say, because they updated their uh, their interagency guidance on commercial real estate and loan workout. Uh, and this is the first time they've done that since 2009. So that's clearly signaling what we shouldn't be surprised about is uh, on commercial real estate is the vacancy rates and rising interest rates kind of uh, for those fixed assets. So I think there's, the FDIC is coming out and signaling that they're expecting the weaknesses to come. And it's it's late. It's late in the day for that warning to come. Yep. Because most people have seen the real estate problems develop long ago, years ago. And, and um uh, in fact, I don't. I mean, I'm, it's hard to even know where it's going uh, because clearly a lot of people are leaving the cities. And so, what's that mean to to the value of real estate in those cities? So, if you aren't being very careful, you, you should be, and you should have started that several years ago. And so, if you're just now getting the idea that maybe it's risky. I mean, you look at what's going on in the cities with the riots and the homelessness and everything else. Uh, is it time to be concerned about the value of real estate in those cities? Of course it is. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. Does that mean that every every all the real estate in the cities is going to go to pot? No. It just means you better be careful. It, it should not be business as usual that you build building after building after building and not be worried about it. And, and so that's 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 what happens in, in banking uh, too often. Um, people start going a certain direction and they don't they don't stop and say, wait a minute, if it gone too far, should we pull back a little bit? Some some people do pull back and that's why they survive. Some people don't, and that's why they don't survive. 
And so it's, it's time to be looking at, it's always time to be looking at those things. And, and if, if you need a regulator to tell you it's time. It's too late. It's, it's too late. Let's shift for a moment and talk about from the perspective of business leaders and operating companies. And I want to discuss kind of one of the things that you and I have talked about before is the focus on working with banks of all sizes. Because after SVB, people had a knee-jerk reaction that was, let's move all to a larger bank. And that's not necessarily the best way to handle that. And I'd like for you to talk about that. Well, I, I, I firmly believe that we need in this country banks of all sizes. Clearly, we need some big banks. And because they can, they can make loans that need to be made that small banks can't make. They're, they're across the seas or wherever they are. Um, the, the big banks have a market that only they can fill. And small banks can't, or even medium-sized banks can't. But just like the big banks are doing things that the small banks can't, the small banks are doing things that big banks can't do very well. Uh, I mean, they're, they're used to mass marketing. They're not used to... I'm, I'm from Bryan, Ohio, a town of 8,000 people in Northwest Ohio. And there are big banks that have, by big banks, I mean some regionals that might have an office in Bryan, Ohio, but they, they don't know Bryan, Ohio. They never will know Bryan, Ohio, the way the small banks do. Mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, they can't fulfill the needs the way small banks can, because a small bank, they know the people, they know the businesses, they know what works, what doesn't work. And we really need those kinds of people in banks that are serving small to medium-sized communities. And, and, and they need to have a presence there. I mean, if they don't have a presence there, who's going to sponsor the little league and, and other things like that, that the small banks do. They're part of the community. They make the community work. And I know that because I grew up with that. And, and so I also see the, 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 the fact that the regional banks are unique. Uh, let's, let's take uh, Fifth Third. It, it serves a, 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 a larger group of businesses in its bank, in its communities, and it's serving larger communities. Uh, it's, it's in places like Cincinnati and Columbus and Cleveland and, and Grand Rapids and Indianapolis and so forth, larger communities uh, with, with larger products and, and you know, you know uh, broader products and so forth. Uh, so there, there's a place for these banks, and I think that if the U.S. got to the Canadian system, which we're you know we're headed in that direction, I hope we stop. Uh, you only have three or four banks in Canada. There's and the rest the rest of the things that are going on are credit unions. Right. You have, you have credit unions that are serving a bunch of people in Canada, and 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 but almost no banks other than the big whatever it is three, four, five. And and uh, I don't want to I don't want to see that system in the U.S. I, I don't think it's I don't think that's what our country is all about. I think we are a very diversified country, uh, geographically, culturally. Uh, we, we live in big towns and small towns and middle-sized towns, and I, I believe in our communities in this country, and I, I believe in them more than I believe in in banks per se. Uh, banks are, are we our banks are there to serve our communities and and so I think we ought to allow to, uh, to develop but we actually did allow to develop and we need to keep them uh, banks of all sizes that fit and work in communities of all sizes with different needs and I think it would be a very sad day for our country if we didn't do that if we let this country continue to uh, uh, minimize the, the banking system and, and, and reduce it to a handful of bigger banks. A terrible mistake. Uh, and that's, that's the way Europe is. And it's the way Canada is. And I don't think it's right for America. I really don't. So when we think about a lot of the online lenders and that are targeting the commercial side, uh, what that does is it really commoditizes 
alone as opposed to building that relationship. Do you have any advice for both lenders and borrowers on how to optimize that interpersonal banking relationship and moving back away from some of the commoditized loans? If you're looking for for something that's more personalized, that's more geared to the customer, you don't buy the commoditized price because you're not, you're not going to get what you want, which is personal service, personal knowledge of you and who you are, your family, what you need, how the, how the how bank can be helpful to you and your community. If, 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 if you care about those things, you're not going to buy a commodity. If you, if you want a commodity, you get out, you don't, you don't shop at the local grocery store. You buy from Amazon. Okay. And I, I, I prefer not to buy my groceries from Amazon. Amazon. I'd like to go to the grocery store and look at them and see what they are and pick them, pick them out and, and choose what I want to choose. And if I pay a little more, so what? I'm, I'm getting something for it. And that, I mean, I, I think that's what we're talking about is, do you want to buy everything from Amazon, including financial services, or do you want to be able to do business with local businesses that, are, that know you and can cater to you? Well, I think the catering and also understanding the local market and delivering on advi- being the banker, being an advisor, uh, how do we help you with your financial structure adds value in that process and not just if not just trying to sell to the low price because I think that is for a brick and mortar especially kind of a failed business model so that you need to have some of that advice and kind of that relationship Bill in your public sector and your private sector experience I'd love to have some insight as to one of the kind of most unconventional approaches to managing risk that you found surprisingly effective or valuable. Who, who was it that says the, the best surprise is no surprise? Somebody had that advertising logo, I think. And and that's that's true. I mean that's not, that's my philosophy. If you if you plan for zero surprises or close to zero at least major crisis. I mean, you're going to always going to have small surprises. There's always going to be somebody who does something wrong and you fire them. Okay. And and that's another thing. If somebody does something wrong, they're either not trained, right? In which case you, you got to change your training or they're not, they're, you know, they're, they're not uh, reliable. They don't have the right mentality, the right standards. And so you fire them. You, you need to get rid of people that aren't doing the job right. If you keep somebody around that, that you know is not doing the job right, shame on you. Either train them better or get somebody else who has higher standards. I don't think you should have surprises, if, if, if big surprises, if you're in financial services. You shouldn't have them. If you do, you've, you've done something wrong. you got to change it. Bill, thank you very much for your insights and, uh, and experience talking today. I think it's been really valuable. I think there are a number of key takeaways that people have, both on the bank failures of the past as well as the current, uh, about the regulatory environment and working with your banks and not just fleeing to the larger banks, but actually staying with the community banks and regional banks because of their value add. And I really want to thank you for your time today to be able to share that with our audience. Thank you for having me. I, I truly enjoy it. It's fun to talk like this and and uh, spread the word to uh, all the banks. I, I, I mean, I do think that I, I love our banking system. It's the best in the world, and I want it to stay strong and even get better. Thank you for tuning in and joining this What the Risk podcast, designed to be a safe space to learn about risk, how to think about risk, and how to expose business blind spots. This podcast is about empowering you as business leaders to reduce the stress of the unknown risks in your business, as well as the stress of decision-making by being able to identify and mitigate potential risks through the right level of due diligence. So here are three quick next steps that I need you to do. Hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to make sure you don't miss future episodes and give us a five-star rating. Share the podcast with a peer. Both of you will gain visibility to what you didn't know existed in the blind spots and go to riskblindspots.com, that's plural because we all have them, riskblindspots.com, to become a blind spot insider. 
you'll get exclusive advance notice of the next two episodes, so you can submit questions, topics, and suggestions for our show. And tell us if we have any blind spots. Continue with us on this journey as we learn to ask the right questions, expose potential pitfalls, and turn those what-the-risk moments into I've-got-this victories. 